0: All right, everybody, how are y'all tonight? Aaron, go ahead and click to the next one. Everybody look at this real quick. Uh, What we are gonna be doing over the next couple of months is we are gonna be studying one of the teachings of Jesus where those of you who are in college right now or you are in graduate school and you remember the thesis statement, remember the thesis statement? I can't believe I just brought that up. This is the thesis statement we're going to be spending time over the next few months looking at, okay? It's not God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. It's not the four spiritual laws. It's not any of those things. Look at how direct. By the way, this is from Jesus. This is in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 what we're going to be looking at the Sermon on the Mount, and this is what he says. But, there's a contrast, unless your righteousness surpasses or exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. Scribes and Pharisees, they were like the outward. They had all the appearance of righteousness. They did all these things in order to get noticed for their righteousness. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes, And Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Pretty crazy. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you so much that you are all over this. You're all over your word. You are pumped about people that want to know your word. And you will, in some people's lives, use the hammer of the word of God to crush through lies and deceit and hardened, calloused hearts. And yet you will also use the seed of the word of God that is sown in the fertile soil of a heart in order to bring forth fruit of repentance and righteousness and Christ-likeness. You will take the sword of the word of God and cut through the crap, the masquerade, and get to the heart of the matter very quickly. So God... We ask that as we look at your word, we ask that as we give preeminence to the word of God that shakes the cedars of Lebanon, the very voice of God written down for us so that we might have hope, so that we might have instruction, we ask that you would meet with us through your word. Lord, as we discuss the text, I ask that the Holy Spirit, not that he's in more more one place than the other, but Lord, I ask that you would make us more aware of his presence here tonight, that we would shut up the lies of the enemy and the distractions that we've listened to all week. And Lord, that we would hear the voice of God. If you would, just real quickly, you know where you're at. If you would ask God um, that he would give you ears To hear. And he might reveal something that's keeping you from being able to hear. And if you would just give that to the Lord real quickly. Jesus, we have full confidence that the gospel changes everything. That it changes individuals... It changes groups, it changes faith families, it changes neighborhoods and cities. Lord, we ask that you would continue to change us through the good news of the gospel that God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we could be the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. In the beautiful, powerful name of Jesus we pray. Amen. All right. So what we're going to be doing, go ahead and click to the next one for me, Aaron. What we're going to be doing over the next couple of weeks, uh, we're not even going to get into the Sermon on the Mount tonight because what we have to do is something called context. We have to set up the setting. Um, Imagine with me, please, that we have a puzzle and we're about to do a puzzle. Okay? Context would be the edges of the puzzle. It would be those corner pieces, those edge pieces that give us the boundaries of what the text says and what the text does not say. So what we're going to do this week is we're going to talk a little bit about Matthew chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4. Okay, We're going to look at those together, and then next week what we're going to do is we're going to do what's called an overview. Bird's eye view, I was on a plane for a really long time today, a bird's eye view of what Matthew 5, 6, and 7 say, and then we're going to come back down to ground level and hit the details and chisel through the details of Matthew 5, 6, and 7. We're going to be in Matthew 5, actually the first few verses of Matthew 5 until Christmas. So it's going to be awesome. It's going to be, it is, the Sermon on the Mount is amazing, absolutely amazing, okay? But if your righteousness does not surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's get to it. Turn to Matthew chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, um, we would love to supply you with one, um, from the back, this would be. I know what you're kind of trying to do. I'm going to look on with my neighbor, but it really helps you engage if you're actually looking at the words yourselves. Because I ask you a couple of questions. Uh, so if you don't have a Bible, it's it's okay. You might have one on your phone anyway, but get one. Okay, we're not going to throw stones at you and mock you. We just want you to have the treasure that we have of the word of God. If you don't own a Bible, come talk to me, come talk to Amy later, and we'd love to buy you one and get you one or send you to a place on the internet that's free. Maybe that's a better idea, whatever. Let's go to Matthew chapter one. For 400 years, God had been silent. The people of Israel had gone through the motions of religion. They had offered their sacrifices. They had practiced the feasts. They had gone through, before the 400 years of silence, they had gone through periods of great blessing and great prosperity through David and Solomon where they had all of the land. And then as they allowed sin to reign instead of God to reign... Slowly, their land began to go away. God continued to wrestle with them through compassion, but God held true to His word that He would judge sin. And so there was a period of three captivities where God sovereignly used Babylon, sovereignly used Assyria and other nations to come in. One place in Scripture says come in with a meat hook around their nose and pull them out of the land and into captivity. These were some pretty wicked people that would transplant them and take all the people that they've conquered, make them live with other people in order to confuse them and make them forget their identity and become a part of Babylon or become a part of Assyria. Well, just like there were three captivities, there were three stages of coming back to the land. Three restorations where they would come back slowly, more would come back, more would come back. At the end of the Old Testament, there's this time period where they're all back in the land. Those that wanted to return, those whom God had put in their heart to return, came back to the land and the glory of the Lord that was supposed to be on the temple was there no more. They were just going Through the motions. What that means, they were religious, but no real stuff on the inside. They were just going through the laws. They were looking to the law to save them. They were looking to to the law to redeem them. But in the back of their mind, through the prophets, through the history of Israel, they had this glimmer of hope. In the book of Isaiah, there's these punching bag of like, I'm going to judge you, I'm going to judge you, I'm going to judge you. And then at the end, it's comfort, comfort my people. Though your sins were as scarlet, they will be white as snow. And there's this scene of what they're looking for called the Redeemer, the Savior, the Messiah. But God was silent for 400 years until the invasion took place. The invasion took place in Matthew chapter 1. Look at it with me, please. Matthew chapter 1. Don't worry, we're not going to read all of this. Uh, Chapter 1, 2, and 3. I just want to give you the context. Let me read this to you. Have you, has your heart been invaded by the king? The book of Matthew is all about the king and his kingdom and what it means for you and I today, okay? The king and his kingdom. Has the king come to establish his kingdom within your heart? It's a kingdom of the heart. It's a kingdom of contrast. It's a kingdom of conflict. When the invasion took place... No more was there this, I can live life the way that I want to. There was a conflict that took place, and we're going to get into that. Like I said, for 400 years, the people of Israel had prayed that God would send the Redeemer, the one that would come and buy them back. But they thought that it was going to be an authoritative king that would set up his kingdom through earthly means, armies, and rebellions. They totally forgot what the prophets had said about the kingdom. They waited for the invasion. Before we get into Matthew, we actually have to talk a little bit about the structure of Matthew. Um, it's not a coincidence that Matthew is the book that bridges the Old Testament to the New Testament. It was predominantly written to a Jewish audience. All throughout Matthew, you'll see the word fulfill. Or fulfillment. You'll see this Old Testament text. If you look in chapter 1, 2, and 3, your Bible may even have it in bold letters. That's a direct reference from a prophecy in the Old Testament. And then probably one or two verses later it says, and this was a fulfillment of this verse. All throughout Matthew that's the case. Why? Because they were looking for this king. The king that God had promised to them. The structure of the book is a little weird. It's a little bit different from Mark or from John. But what the author does is he presents a work of Jesus Christ or a piece of the of who Jesus is. And then Jesus begins to teach, to support that very thing that he's just talked about. Okay, so look at it with me, please. Uh, turn to Matthew 7.28, actually. Matthew 7.28. Matthew seven twenty eight is the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has just finished teaching, and then he says, or it says this. When Jesus had finished these words, the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not like their scribes. Slap in the face to the scribes. Awesome. Then in chapter 8, he begins to pick up another person or another piece of the puzzle of who Jesus is, and then teaches on it, and ends that in Matthew 11.1, 1. same thing, 13.53, 19.1, 1, and the very last one I want you to turn to, Matthew 28. We're going to start backwards and actually look at the conclusion in order to figure out the beginning. Go to Matthew 28. Jesus, the king, had set up who he is, and because of who he is, king, savior, he says these words to his disciples. Look at verse 16. These are probably familiar words to you. Verse 16. But the 11 disciples, oops, lost one, proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated, the same mountain in which the Sermon on the Mount is gonna take place, or the same range. When they saw him, Jesus after the resurrection, he's been crucified, he's been in the grave, he's rose again, has, a, has the body. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some of his disciples were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Why? Because of what he just did, the work of the cross, the work of the resurrection. Go, therefore, and make disciples of Of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. Because of who Jesus was, king, kingdom, a vital part of the kingdom was the people that have been redeemed and put as citizens within this kingdom were then supposed to take the kingdom and spread the kingdom. Okay? We get that, right? We know that. If we are a disciple of Jesus, if we're a follower of Christ, how does this relate to us? This is where I shut up for a second and get some air and breathe. How does this relate to us? It's our job to take the gospel, it's our job to make disciples, not just. ...lamblast them with a few verses and tell them they're going to hell... ...but to make disciples. What's a disciple look like? Baptized. Teaching them to observe just the New Testament. All that I've commanded. Disciples then make disciples. Disciples then make disciples. Disciples then make disciples. Awesome. So that's the goal... King, kingdom, what's the kingdom look like? The kingdom citizens are then taking the kingdom and advancing it from Matthew 28 on until Acts, on Ephesians, Galatians, now where we are today, disciple makers making disciples. Go back to Matthew chapter 1. Somebody read the first verse for us, please. Matthew chapter 1. Bueller. Awesome. The record of the genealogy. What's a genealogy? Family tree. How, like, awe-inspiring are genealogies? Well, let's look at it real quick. We're not going to read it all. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Go down to verse 5. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. Not really like go and be blessed material, right? However, dude, if you want to study on the sovereignty of God and a study on how God uses imperfect people in order to accomplish his purposes, if you look at these names and look at the situations in which they were, you see some pretty cool stuff. But go back to verse 1 again. What's verse 1 say? Somebody read it one more time. Daniel Lawson, you did a good job. Read it again. Okay, first off, the historical record. Historical. You, at this point, have a choice of, do I believe this is true, that this is a historical fact, or is this some little felt board story is this real or is this not okay historical what's the next part record yes of or about jesus good we're back in sunday school jesus what else the son of david say that with me please the son of david what does that have anything to do with what we're talking about here Descendant of David. The 400 years of silence, what kind of Messiah, what promise did they have? What requirement did the Messiah, sovereign Savior have to have? Descendant of David. God had made a covenant with David and said, there will always be a descendant, a ruler on your throne. So from this point forward, he paints this picture of Jesus as the rightful king the invasion the king invaded he's the son of David and what else son of Abraham what in the world does that have anything to do with what we're talking about right on he's going to have an offspring there are going to be a lot of them but what does that have to do with the king the kingdom? See if you remember our gospel series from like week one. Abraham was the father of nations. nations. Genesis 12, through Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. You jump on over to Galatians chapter 3, and the seed that was promised, the singular seed that was promised to Abraham was looking forward to Jesus Christ. Awesome. You cannot have the invasion of the Redeemer without him being the king sitting on the throne of David and the one with whom is the offspring of Abraham. So what Matthew does is he goes through all of these things about the king. The one that invaded, the invading king was the Christ, the Son of of David. Jump down to verse 21. Really cool stuff um, in there, but we don't have time to get into all of it. Go to verse 21. He's just talked about all of these things. Actually, go back to verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as followed when his mother married, had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man, from this point forward, as you study with us, this I'm adding this, y'all are still looking at your Bible. From this point forward, every time you see the word righteous, you should mark it. You should think about it. What do I learn about righteousness? Because remember the thesis statement: unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So we need to know about righteousness. Joseph was righteous. Uh, Let's keep going. Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man, not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. Why? Because she's pregnant and they are not married. It was a problem back in that day. We won't get into cultural things today. Verse 20, but when he had considered this, no MTV pregnant moms show on on TV back then. But when they had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid, take Mary... As your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. What does that have to do with the king and his kingdom? We've got he's the son of David, son of Abraham, and now he's been conceived, not by Joseph and Mary getting it on, but by the Holy Spirit. Why is that a big deal? It was a promise, what? Their king is God. Men, what's the problem on planet Earth? Man slash sin. If Jesus was born from Joseph and Mary, what would Jesus have? Sin. However, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, so what does Jesus not have? Sin. Pretty important. Okay, let's keep going. So we've got that he the, this invasion is taking place by the son of David son of Abraham, and he is born from the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 21 now. She, Mary, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? Well, yeah. I mean, God told him. Why is his name going to be Jesus, though, besides that? Because he will save his people ...from their sins. Jesus. Name him. He's going to save the people from the sins. Name him Yeshua. God our Savior. Now here's the deal. I know you all. I know many of y'all. I've had conversations with many of y'all. The point of the king... ...in the kingdom... first off... ...the whole reason why Jesus was here... ...according to Matthew is... ...to save you from your sins. Some of you feel trapped. Some of you feel ensnared. Some of you still feel enslaved in the grips of sin. Jesus, the king, came, invaded earth... ...for the purpose of saving you from those sins... What sins? Well, maybe you feel like you've just had the outward behaviors of a Christian for your entire life. You did the camp thing. You did the sign the card thing. You did the join the church thing. You did all of those things, but you are still enslaved to sin. You see, when Jesus saves you from your sins, it's not just an immediate salvation. You go to heaven. It's, He saved you from your past. Right now in the present, he is saving you. He is saving you, redeeming you, washing you with the water of the word, transforming you from glory to glory so that you look more like Jesus. He's saving you now and he will save you in the future. When the king of kings comes back and every man will give an account to the deeds which they have done. He will save you then. We get a lot of times, oh yeah, Jesus saved me from my sins and I get to go to heaven. But we leave out the necessary part of Jesus, the gospel, transforms, changes you now, right here. It sanctifies you. When Christ invaded, he came to set you, he came to set me free, to buy you out of slavery to sin, to make you more like him through sanctification in the now, and one day complete the redemption Go to verse 22. So if you're still enslaved, um, this book is awesome for you because it will show you what Jesus is like, despite what you've seen in the world around you through some people that have the outward like, oh, I'm a Christian, but inside, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay? So this book is a great place for you to start. Look at verse 22. Call his name Jesus, he'll save his people from his sin. Verse 21, now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child, shall bear a son, they shall call his name, what? Emmanuel. Everybody's singing the song, Michael W. Smith style. Which means what? Now let, I know that we're so used to that because we've, Most of us, a lot of us have grown up in the church and have then been de churched and then have come back to the church. What what is the significance of Emmanuel? God with us. You're never alone. Okay, you're never alone? What were you saying? Yeah. I mean, you've heard it all at Christmas. Our king did not come in, in priestly robes, and he did not come in a palace. and It paints that picture. But our king, when he invaded, where did he come? Probably to a cave surrounded by animals with dung. Not the place of really a king. Our king, who knew no sin, added to his divinity, humanity... Philippians chapter 2, so that he could be the servant of all and ransom many. That's odd, y'all. No king does that. Most of the time in battle, where's the king? In the back. You all go die. If it gets to me, I'll get on my horse and run away. What do you see Jesus, the king who is invading here, what is he doing He is right there. He has entered into time. He who created, spoke into the darkness and created, is the one now breathing the air through his lungs that he created. He's wearing the flesh that will one day be ripped open because of the sins of the world. This, is cra- this kingdom is crazy. It's not like a kingdom that we've ever seen on earth before. Well, go to chapter 2. Matthew chapter 1, he's the son of David. He's the son of Abraham. He is a rightful king. The king that is invading is a rightful king. Look at chapter 2. Verse 1, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. What kind of king was Herod? He was an earthly king. Anybody know from where? Over whom? Jews? Yep, good job. Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, where is he who's been born what? King. We're seeing a repeated word. It's a good thing to mark him sometimes. He, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And you probably know the story. What did Herod do? There is a conflict. Before the king even is on the throne, so to speak, before the king has even grown up, there is a conflict already. What's the conflict? There's an earthly king... His name is Herod, and what does he try to do? Tries to take out Jesus. Heavenly kingdom intersects earth. Earthly kingdom, conflict. What happens with the story of Jesus and Herod and all those those things? What do you remember about that? You have the text, luckily, so you're able to look at it. What happens? Magi are sneaky. They don't tell them. Where does Jesus go? Egypt. Hmm. Also a fulfillment. Look at verse 15. He remained there, Egypt, until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt I will call my son. Every little paragraph in this chapter is this was a fulfillment. This was a fulfillment. This was a fulfillment. Why? So you will know that this is the king that we've been looking for. This is the king that had been prophesied so long about so long ago. Okay? So Herod was not successful. There's an earthly king. With the invasion of the Savior king came a conflict of kingdoms, and this conflict has continued ever since. Heavenly kingdom, earthly kingdom. Continued ever since. Yet, throughout chapter 2, you see, and the life of Jesus, you see that God is sovereign. He gives them a dream. He tells them to go here. It's already been talked about in Isaiah. It's already been talked about in Malachi. Go back. They did that in fulfillment, all through the sovereign hand of God. Then go to verse or chapter 3. Chapter 1, son of Abraham. Son of David. He is the rightful king that's invading. Chapter two, there is a clash of kingdoms. Rightful king versus earthly puppet king that will not bow the knee because of pride to the rightful king. Chapter three, who comes up on the scene? John the Baptist. The invasion has some pretty crazy stuff happening with John the Baptist. Heaven invades earth, and now man has to make a choice. Look at what John the Baptist says, okay? John the Baptist is a really hairy guy. He's got some weird clothes on. He eats honey and locusts in the wilderness. He's not your average, like, Baptist, fat Baptist preacher, okay? Okay? and he's out there in the wilderness with these people along the side of the Jordan River, and look at what he says. Kind of imagine it, kind of go there in your mind, I don't know, whatever. Now, in those days, after Jesus had gone through all those things, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, what's he say? I like that, Pauline. Pauline, say that for us real loud. Repent. Why? Repent. For the kingdom of, his, of heaven is at hand. The king and his kingdom. In order for the... When the earthly king or when the heavenly king comes and establishes his kingdom, what is the call here from John the Baptist? Repent. The kingdom is here. It's coming. It's here. It already now is. Make straight the way of the Lord. This, again, is fulfillment of tons of scripture. Isaiah chapter 40, where every valley is lifted up, every mountain is laid low, so that there is a way prepared for the king of glory to come in. Pretty cool stuff. We don't have time to get into it. <sighs> Go down to the responses that happen as, Jesus, or as John the Baptist is baptizing. Look at verse six. And they were being baptized. I mean... Think about it. This really hairy, really gross guy is saying, repent. Like he's talking to the people of Israel who have have the religious leaders. They're not really feeling it from the religious leaders. And this guy who is against the religious system comes and says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And they're like, okay. And they're baptized in the water. Look at what he says in verse 6. They were being baptized by him in the Jordan As they were confessing their sins. Repentance involves confession of sins. Go down to verse 7. He sees a bunch of Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism. And he says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? When the kingdom of heaven comes, there's two choices. Submit to the kingdom or be against the kingdom. The wrath of God will come as a result of the king with his kingdom. That's what John the Baptist said. Who warned you about this? In verse 8, therefore, as a result of the wrath of God coming, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Don't say to yourself, we have Abraham. The axe is ready, verse 10, going to go to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear fruit, is cut down and thrown into the fire. As for me, I, John, baptize you with water for repentance. But he, Jesus, who is coming after me, is mightier than I am, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He, Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. This is what I want to draw your attention to as we think about, think forward with the Sermon on the Mount. Look at verse 12. His winnowing fork is at hand. He will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. He will gather his wheat into the barn and he will burn the chaff with an unquenchable fire. You see, the king, when he comes to establish the kingdom, there's opposition, there's conflict. There is no middle ground. There is no neutral. When the king comes, it gives this picture. I can't say the word. Agricultural picture of a farmer Taking the wheat that is with the tares, taking it, throwing it up in the air. What happens with the wheat? The chaff blows away. The wheat falls to the ground. There's a separation that takes place when the king comes with his kingdom. What will happen to the chaff? It will be burned. To what extent? The unquenchable fire. All of this is being taught before Jesus gets on the scene to give the Sermon on the Mount about the king and his kingdom, okay? So, so far we have the invasion takes place by a king who is the rightful king, son of David, son of Abraham. The king, chapter 2, there is a conflict, a clash of kingdoms. He doesn't just come into the political system and make peace and then set up his kingdom. There is a an aggression, there is a conflict, there is an in-your-face, I'm king, you're not situation taking place. Let's keep going. Sorry, my screen went black. Look at the very end of this chapter. Remember, Jesus or John the Baptist is preaching about repentance. In our previous Acts study, we used the definition from Paul David Tripp that repentance is... Waking up, do you remember? A wake-up call where you are in the reality of what's really going on. A wake-up call, then an, an attempt to submit and change and a transfer of weight. You wake up to your reality just like the prodigal son. You come back to where you were. You assert that wrong, this was wrong. God help me with right. And then you transfer the weight. This is on the cross. I have a new identity. Repentance. Change of mind that leads to change of heart... ...that leads to change of direction. You. I can tell what you believe by what you do. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Out of the heart come all of the deeds. Those are things that Jesus said. So if you are doing all of these deeds... It is a billboard sign of what's really going on in your heart. Remember, the king and his kingdom, it's a kingdom of the heart. As you look at the Sermon on the Mount, you're going to see Jesus saying, you've heard it said, but I tell you. You've heard behavioral stuff, but I'm going to come in and tell you what the heart of the matter really is, all pointing out. But unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Outward stuff or transformation from the inside. Kingdom of the heart. Look at um, verse 16. After being baptized, this crazy scene happens. Sky opens up. This is my son, my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Okay, just in case you were confused with the whole Abraham thing. In case you were confused with the whole virgin birth thing, that's kind of strange. In case you were confused with the son of David thing, God opens the sky and gives his stamp of approval on his son, saying, this is the king. The Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus, verse 16, comes on him, and behold, a voice cries out from heaven, this is my son, my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. Verse 4, then, after that, what happens? Same spirit that comes upon him, what's the spirit do? Yep. You see the word spirit right there in verse 1? Typically you look at what's around it and it gives you a clue as to what happens. So what does the spirit do in verse 1? Just in case you missed it. Good. The spirit that's just come upon him leads him to the wilderness. And what happens in the wilderness? Temptation. Temptation. Now, that'll mess with your theology a little bit. The Holy Spirit that just has come upon Jesus leads him where? Into the wilderness where he's going to be tempted. We have another clash of kingdoms taking place. Not an earthly kingdom with a king like Herod, but an earthly kingdom that is ruled by the prince of the power of the air. 1 John chapter 5 says something like this. This, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So with each of these temptations, you guys know this, the enemy says something to him, and how does Jesus respond? As it is written. Here, do this. No, as it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but shall live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. The last temptation is the most crucial What happens with the last temptation in this chapter? Power. What verse are we in? Look at verse 8 in order to get what's going on. The devil takes him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world, all their glory, said to them, all these things I'll give to you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus says to him, Go Satan for it's written you shall not worship you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and behold the angels came and began to minister to him. It's a question of power, like someone said. Jesus for us the king is the perfect example for us. He was not going to take his kingdom before it was time. This gives us a principle that we all need to remember. There is no crown without a, you've heard it before, cross. Jesus had to go through the agony of the cross, had to go through the torment of the cross, had to go through the burial and resurrection in order to do what he came to do. There is no crown without a cross. So, The enemy is shut up, at least in this part. And we get to the very end of this chapter. Jesus goes, verse 14. This was to fulfill what was spoken. He goes to Zebulun and Naphtali. Isaiah the prophet, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. The invasion has taken place. And those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them the light dawned. Again, a fulfillment of scripture, but here's the point, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say what? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then he starts calling some of his disciples. Verse 23, he's going through Galilee, Galilee. ...proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom... ...healing every kind of disease, every sickness. The news, the popularity is spreading about Jesus. Large crowds follow him. You have John the Baptist. What's his message? Repent. Kingdom of heaven is at hand. You've got Jesus comes on the scene. He is the king. Abraham. David. Skies opening up. This is my beloved son. What's his message? How is it that within evangelical churches today we do not use the word repent? What's it mean for us? It's got to be pretty important if John the Baptist, the one who's preparing the way of the Lord, and Jesus, the king who's setting up the kingdom, if he uses and repeats the word repent, it's got to be pretty important. Why do you think it is that we don't emphasize the message of Jesus and John the Baptist here. This is where you talk to me. What? We're too nice to people? Yeah. According to John, according to Jesus, the gospel is repent. And it gives you the idea of, well, how the heck do I do that? Well, you need a savior. I need a savior. If I'm going to repent... I need somebody to pay my debt. I need somebody to pay the price for my sins. I can't do that on my own. I need a savior. Repent. In order to repent, God has to move. I have to move. Partner with him. God's kindness leads me to repentance. Right on. Did y'all hear that? She's reading it. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Think of John the Baptist. You're like wheat or chaff. There's no middle ground. Throw it up in the air, burn. Some of you, unquenchable fire. Some of you, wheat in life. It's not like this, you know, well, today we're going to talk about finances and how that has to do with God and never really talk about the gospel. Or we're going to talk about all kinds of behavioral modification where you never get to the point that you need a savior, you cannot repent unless God moves on your behalf and you partner with him through faith and are transformed. Well, this isn't a new message, and I'm not going to take time to read all of these things to you, but this is the most repeated message throughout the Old Testament. The word repent is used So many times in the Old Testament. I want to draw your attention to one or two of them. You can look at them later, which is highly recommended. Go to Isaiah chapter 55. Isaiah chapter 55. If you're a teacher and you have to leave, go for it. If you don't, stay. Um, I told you Isaiah is like the punching bag of like judgment, 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 judgment. Then you get to the latter part of the book, and it's like judgment, little glimmer of hope, comfort. Judgment, little glimmer of hope, comfort. Uh, Chapter 55 is one of those glimmer of hope. The compassion of the Lord. I'm going to read a couple of these things to you. See if you envision john the baptist envision jesus and their message and envision that you are the original hearers of john the baptist and jesus you know this stuff you know isaiah you know the prophets look at some of the things that isaiah says ho awkward word everyone who thirsts everyone who thirsts come to the waters and you who have no money come buy eat come buy wine and milk without money without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen, listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear to come to me. Listen that you might live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies shown to David. Jump down to verse six. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return. What's that sound like? Let the wicked man return or repent and God will have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. My thoughts are not your thoughts, your ways. You can't get this. You can't understand how a holy God will allow you to repent. Repent. My, high, my ways, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than yours. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Jump down to verse 11. So will my word be, which goes from my mouth, it will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire. What's all that about? His word will not return void. It's about repentance. All those verses that you've heard in there, his ways are not our ways, my thoughts are not our, What does that have to do with repentance? with God, returning to God and God's compassion. Jump over to Jeremiah chapter three. One of my favorite books, Uh, Jeremiah is a stud because he's told, uh, before I formed you in the womb, I was with you and appointed you a prophet that you would pluck up, destroy, tear down and then build up. Nobody's gonna listen to you, but you're gonna do it anyway. That's basically Jeremiah chapter one for you. Jeremiah chapter two, God says that he has this contention against the children of Israel that um, he's building this case, excuse me, against them, that they've gone to wells. They've gone and dug wells with their own hands, hands dirty, looking for water, looking for water, looking for water. They've forsaken the fountain of living waters, Jesus, and they've gone and dug all these wells that is like pointless, and they're dirty, and they're sick, and they're gross, and they need somebody to come in, pick them up out of the well, out of the big aqueduct of a well, and put them on a rock. Redemption, repentance, all over the place. Look at chapter 3. God says, if a faithful husband divorces his wife and she goes from him and belongs to another man, will he still return to her? Will not the land be completely polluted? But you, Israel, are a harlot with many lovers. You Yet you turn to me, declares the Lord. Lift up your eyes to the bare heights and see where have you not been violated? Where have you not spread your legs to the idols in all of Israel? God's confronting them with their idolatry. Where have you not been violated? By the roads you have sat for them like an Arab in the desert. And you have polluted a land with your harlotry and your wickedness. Therefore, the showers have been withheld. There's no spring rain. You have the harlot's forehead, stubborn. You refuse to even be ashamed. Do you know people that are so ingrained in their sin? They're so ingrained in their idolatry, they spread it around all over the place. And They don't care. They're not even ashamed of their sin. Have you not just now called to me? My father, you are the friend of my youth. Will he be angry forever? This is what you say to him. Will he be indignant to the end? Oh God, you're a God of grace, a God of mercy. You'll forgive me. Look at what he says. Will he be indignant to the end? Behold, you have spoken and have done evil things and you have had your way. Then the Lord said to me, Jeremiah, in the day of Josiah the king. Go to verse 7. I thought after she had done all these harlotries, she would return. Listen to the brokenheartedness of God. But she didn't return. And her treacherous Judah, sister Judah saw it. And I saw for all the adulteries of a faithless Israel. I had sent her away and given her a writ of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear. But she was a harlot also. Because of the lightness of her harlotry, she polluted the land, committed adultery with stones and trees, the idols. Yet, in spite of all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but rather in deception, declares the Lord. And the Lord said to me, Faithless Israel has proved herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Go and proclaim these words to the people of the north and say, Return, repent, faithless Israel. Israel declares the Lord. Consider all that they've done to God. And his message still is return. I will not look upon you in anger, for I'm gracious, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your iniquity that you have transgressed against the Lord your God. You have scattered your favors to the strangers under every green tree. You've not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return for I'm a master to you. And I will take you from one city and I will bring you back to Zion. I will give you shepherds return. Hear the heart of the Father. Yes, he wants to judge sin, but he wants them to return. If you're writing some notes down, write down these passages too. We don't have time to get into them. Write down Ezekiel 18. This is the repeated theme throughout the New Testament prophets. Ezekiel 18 is very similar. Hosea. Um, Chapter 6, verses 1 to 3. Come, let us return to the Lord. He's torn us, but He will heal us. He's wounded us, but He will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will will raise us up on the third day that we may live. So let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn. He will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain. Zechariah 1, 3 through 4. Let us return to the Lord So that the Lord will return to us all throughout the Old Testament. This is the message that they had received. This is the message they didn't listen to. This is why there was 400 years of silence. And God returns through the invasion of Jesus Christ. Heaven invaded with the promised light, the invasion of the Savior King. It was counter cultural, it was against Herod, the system of the day. It was against the enemy, the system of the prince of the power of this world. It's not Jesus, meek Jesus and mild Jesus with the long flowing hair and the blue eyes and the white man, Jesus. It's King Jesus is coming to set up his kingdom. The call of the kingdom to you and I is one word. What is it? Repent. Repent. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the message right before Jesus shows up on the scene and tells us what repentance and righteousness looks like. If you'd like to this week, I would really encourage you to spend some time in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Looking at it, looking at what's taking place Here, Jesus is talking about this. Here, Jesus is talking about this. And looking for that word, righteousness. If you get confused, we'll put it on Facebook later so that you can look at it. The more time you spend wrestling with the text, the more the Lord is going to use this to change your heart and your life. Don't do drive-through Bible study, okay? Spend some time with the Lord. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you have to leave, we understand, but we're changing the way we do things a little bit where we're having a little bit of worship, a lot of teaching that is still worship through the Word, and then we're gonna have this time of response in worship to the Lord. Some of you know people that, um, that need the gospel, the aroma of Christ. They need it, and that it is your call to be that to them. Some of you have been so deceived by sin. And your hearts are so hardened. Repent. Return to the Lord so that he may return to you. Come to Jesus. The one who has compassion, yes. But the one who's the king. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are in the kingdom of God. And that means he is your king. His rule is your standard. His reign is what you look to. He controls You. Some of you need to pay homage to the King for what he's done in his flesh and through his blood. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you that he is the Savior, he is the King. I thank you that he will set the people free from their sins. I thank you that he is the one who carried out the gospel. The hope that we have is in him, the treasure. Of Jesus, only the blood of Jesus can cover us from sin. Lord, I thank you that He we don't have to think that He's some new thing on the scene, but you had redemption in mind from the beginning. And so, Lord, I ask that you would allow the gospel, the seeds of the Word of God to bear fruit even tonight, Lord, that you would put eternity in people's hearts so that they could come to know Jesus. Not the weak, deluded, false gospel of a Jesus that is being peddled today where Jesus is my friend or Jesus is just my healer, but the gospel of the kingdom that Jesus is the king. The king became sin so that I could be the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus and that demands my worship. That demands my praise. That demands every breath and beat of my heart. Jesus, you're worthy. You are so worthy. You're worthy of it all. And so, Father, show us what it means to be citizens of a new kingdom that is not of this earth but is advancing. We thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.